Welcome to the Pro Aging Podcast. My name is Steve Gurney. I am the founder of Positive Aging Sourcebook, and we're excited that you can join us for our interactive discussions with pioneers and thought leaders on a wide variety of topics related to aging and longevity. Today, we have another live and interactive discussion with three important professionals that will help you focus on how to pay for long-term care and managing a crisis and planning ahead financially. Our first panel member is Bernadette Sweeney. She is an elder law attorney. We have Colleen Duell with Lionheart Elder Care and Consulting, and she is an aging life care manager. And we have Arvette Reed, who's with the Life Care Affordability Plan. So let's jump into the discussion. Record this. And then the second thing that I'm going to do is say just how delighted I am to have this panel presentation. I've really, over the years, I've been in awe of um, what Arvette and Tom West are doing with the Life Care Affordability Plan, which we're going to learn a little bit more about, and figuring out the best way that we can sort of blend in that amazing resource with a really open discussion on paying for care. And I can't think of any better way to do it than have an aging life care manager and an elder law attorney on the panel because they are the boots on the ground dealing with the, the crisis situations and the planning ahead situations that families are, are dealing with. And um, so, I'm, I'm really charged up about this discussion, if you guys can't, can't tell. Um, what I'm going to do is let's first get to know our panel members, and then um, I'll duck behind the curtain, but I just want to remind everybody that let's make this interactive. That's what makes these discussions really hum. And so at any point in time, if you have any questions or comments for our panel member, make sure you type those in. So um, let's see. Arvet, I'm going to start with you first because uh, I, I just put you up on a pedestal there, which you're very deserving of. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what led to your current role at Life Care Affordability Plan. Great. So hopefully you can hear me well. Awesome. Good. Um, so Steve, thanks again for pulling this together. This is so exciting. So to tell you a little bit about myself, I'm a local, born and raised in Alexandria. Um, and I spent 15 years working in the senior housing and healthcare market, always in marketing. And so I was the person meeting with families talking about moving into independent living, assisted living, whether they need um, dementia assisted living, nursing care. Um, I also worked for hospice. And all that time during the 15 years, I never ever really understood how people were going to pay for the service. I would just tell them the price. And so four years ago, I joined Tom West Practice, and the goal was to create a tool, a plan to actually help people better prepare for the cost of healthcare. So it's been great. Um, and I'm so, so excited to be on this panel today with both Colleen and Bernadette that I've worked with before um, in this space. I love it. All right. So let's see, I'm going to move to my left at the top of the screen to Colleen, who is an aging life care manager. Um, Colleen, tell us a little bit about your background leading up to your current role, but then also make sure that you give us that broad definition for aging life care managers for those people in the audience that might not be familiar with your important profession. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks. Um, I actually started my uh, professional career, my background is in public health, but I started my professional career in maternal and child health. So I actually worked with little people as they were starting out. <laughs> um, but once I had an opportunity to work with older adults in different settings, I really knew that that's my group. That's my passion. That's who I love spending time with. I think you're either one or the other. And I'm definitely, I, I, I think retirees enough are my favorite population. Um, so it's really an honor to do what I do every day. Um, I started in this profession when a family member of mine got sick. I was working very full time. I was flying back and forth doing distant caregiving. I had to navigate every, when, it when we talk about paying for care, I had to navigate every system. I had to figure out the Medicare system, the veteran system, the Medicaid system in a different state. Um, there was just nothing that I wasn't trying to figure out on my own while doing a lot of other things. And, and it was one of those days when I was sitting in, a, um, in the VA center um, with a group that I just loved and I thought, this is what I wanna do. Um, and so part of my plan and what I've been able to, to pull together is saying, I don't want anybody else to have to figure this out on their own either, whether it's an adult child or somebody themselves, trying to figure out how do I navigate aging? How do I bring in the resources and the care and the support that I need? Um, so that's how I founded Lionheart. Um, we all are like professional adult daughters, um, helping with a variety of things. We're a very multidisciplinary team. So among our group, we can help with resources, with care, um, how to pull in the folks on this panel. I've had the um, privilege to work with both folks and, and know their skill and how important they are to the team. I love it. Yeah, I, uh, I refer to aging life care managers, or I should say I educate our readers on aging life care managers on a weekly basis, because inevitably, and this ties into pay, paying for care, inevitably, I get a call every week from an adult child who's arguing about how much they should be spending on mom's care and they have these differing opinions. And I always say, you need to look at an aging life care manager, get somebody who's got an objective viewpoint, not on the cost, but what's on the best thing for mom to do. And then you can figure it out from there. So uh, uh -huh. great. So excited to have you on the panel, Colleen. And that leads to last but not least, but Bernadette uh, Sweeney, who is an elder law attorney, and again, uh, a very vital profession in our field. Bernadette, tell us a little bit about your practice and, uh, and maybe give folks a little overview of the, uh, the scope of what elder law attorneys do. Sure, thanks, Steve. And I just wanna to add to uh, Colleen, you're invaluable to my practice, both for my clients and for myself, um, because I serve as people's guardian a lot. And so absolutely just wanna echo that. Um, I started out as an attorney, as a criminal defense attorney, um, and did a lot of work in the state and federal courts um, and liked that, <laughs> but I always had um, an interest in estate planning, and that's how I came to elder law about um, maybe 20, 25 years ago. I started at a small firm in Rockville that was doing elder law. At the time, nobody really had heard of that, um, or it was sort of a new kind of a uh, piece of um, legal practice. So I started out, I went there because I thought, well, I want to do wills and trusts and I like the estate and tax planning part of it. And I fell in love with the elder law pieces of it, which include 
a lot of things in addition to just dra drafting documents. Um, part of it is helping people plan for long-term care, um, Medicaid, Medicare issues. Um, the other large piece of my practice is a guardianship practice, which works into elder law in terms of you know, estate planning when you fail to plan or you haven't had a chance to plan or the documents that you did don't work. Um, you know, sometimes people are in court in guardianship litigation um, to have somebody appointed as a, as a fiduciary, as a surrogate to make decisions for people. So that's actually a pretty large part of my practice. Um, and the court appoints me in certain cases where people don't have family members to serve. The court um, sometimes appoints me to handle people's money. And in that role, I use Tom and Arvette's firm and I use folks like Colleen all the time to help me navigate through that system for my clients. I mean, I know certain pieces of it, but the other pieces of it, you know, I need, I, I like to reach out to those professionals that I trust to, to help me with that piece of it as well. I love it. All right. Well, let's, uh, what do, I, I know the audience is thrilled that we got a great panel for them today. So I'm going to duck behind the curtain here, but I want to remind the audience to type in your questions and, um, and, uh, Panel members, feel free to check in with me periodically. If there's some good questions, I'll, I'll jump in or I'll pop back on the screen. Okay, sounds good. All right, so I'm gonna share my screen. And so the first thing I wanna bring up is when someone says, how do I pay for care? That is such a loaded question, right? So when you are figuring out how to pay for care, some people just think about their investment portfolio. Do I have enough money? Or some people just think about their income, maybe their social security coming every month or their pension coming every month. The reality is when you're trying to figure out how to pay for care, there are a lot of different things that need to be analyzed. So you can see here in this like word bubble, there's lots of different pieces of the puzzle that we need to figure out how to put together to solve the, the question of how do you pay for care in your circumstance? So your financial circumstance is gonna be completely different from someone else's, right? And we like to show how there are so many different things that need to be considered so that people will reach out and get help and make sure that they're looking at every single option that there is to put the money together to pay for care. But on the finance side, the financial professionals can't do this by themselves. And it's really important for us to, let me get to the next slide. Look at this image, which we call the three-legged stool. And that is the reason why this panel has been intentionally put together today. When you are looking at how to pay for care, people within the financial industry are dependent on people like Colleen and Bernadette. We need to know from a legal aspect what are things in the documents and what plans have been put together so we can figure out financially how that affects the person. And then from a care management perspective, what is the plan of care? What is the goal? Where are you gonna be? So each of these three legs is very important and we all work together all of the time. So I wanted to start with this image to show you that without all three legs, you really can't answer the question, how do you pay for care? All right, so I'm gonna hand it off to Bernadette and I'm gonna let you comment a little bit about how the three legs work together. Sure, absolutely, thanks Arvette. So my, my role you know, in the, from the legal aspect is, you might think of initially how the first place that estate planning and elder law or long-term care planning intersect is, what legal documents do you have in place? I mean, those are sort of where, at least from my perspective, we have to start. 
you know, when folks talk about estate planning, they don't necessarily think about um, anything beyond, well, what happens after I pass away? But a really important part of estate planning is that is incapacity planning, which works into your long-term care plan. Not only do you want a, a, an estate planning document that says what happens to your property after you die, but clients also need to have those powers of attorney in place or possibly trusts if that's appropriate, some kind of an incapacity plan um, so that fiduciaries are appointed in the event that somebody be, does become legally incapacitated and they maybe have started a long-term care plan with Arvette and Colleen, but can't finish it because God forbid, you know, they've had some sort of catastrophic health emergency and can't make their own decisions anymore. The legal aspects of having those documents in place is imperative to be able to continue that long-term care plan and, and carry out those people, that person's wishes. So that's sort of the first part of my job um, from the legal perspective, you know, and then the other pieces that sort of work together with the care management piece and the financial piece you know, are those Medicare and Medicaid rules, issues related to long-term care insurance and how we access those benefits if somebody has them. You know, all the information that Arvet you get from your clients is really important to not only the legal part of it in terms of putting documents together, but we work, we then, as you know, we all work together to come up with a plan collaboratively because all those pieces absolutely sort of have to mesh together and relate yeah. to one another. Yeah. And from our standpoint, what's really important is when we're working with clients and they're trying to say, how am I going to pay for care? We're not only talking about the person that has the illness, right? We're also concerned about the well spouse. So us, from a financial perspective, looking at the documents that you would get from Bernadette, that informs us what happens when the person who has the illness passes away financially what's left for the person that's well, right? So planning is for both people um, if there are two people involved. So those legal documents and how they're written and where the money goes and who gets what is very, very important in that how do you pay for care um, question. Absolutely. Colleen, let's hand it over to you. You talk a little bit about the stool. Yeah. Um, well, and I think when people come to me, it, we can kind of think of like two buckets. One is people come to me most often, the biggest bucket is I'm personally having a crisis. Um, it may be an adult child, it may be a spouse, but somebody says something has happened, it's not great. And it's usually a healthcare situation. Mm -hmm. And so the immediate need is how do I pay for this situation? If the person's in the hospital, that's a little bit easier because that's typically Medicare. But then, what's next? Maybe um, we need to bring in home care. Maybe we need to think about assisted living. Well, those are, those are important things and they're things that I definitely help a family work through and think about and strategize what's the best place for you, what's the right home care. Um, but my question right along with that is always twofold. What's the budget? Um, like what resources do we have to pay for this care? And like our vet said, we need to think about everybody that's involved in this situation because we could put all of the money to care but then let's say there's no money left for the well spouse but what are the other options that we have like long-term care policies and that kind of thing mm -hmm. um the other piece is who has the authority to make these decisions if somebody is sick and they're not able to speak for themselves who can so again my first two questions are what kind of budget are we looking at so that we know what care is accessible and who has the decision-making capacity in this time? And it's so tragic to me, and I and I and this happens more often than I can tell you, 
that people haven't, maybe they have never documented, they haven't done those legal documents that indicate who should be responsible or they haven't updated them. So maybe somebody in there isn't able to serve anymore. They may not even be alive anymore. They may just be in another country and there's a pandemic going and we can't get to them. Um, yep. So it's, it's helping people. So my, that's the bucket of one bucket is crisis. The other bucket is people who are perhaps the folks on this call thinking ahead, <laughs> saying, how do I make sure that I'm not in that big bucket of crisis with nothing, no plan? But how do I start thinking now about what I need to have in place? And I guess my hope for this whole conversation is just start somewhere. Um, it feels complicated. We're going to show you a slide that might set your hair on fire in a second, but we're here to help with that. Um, all of this is just a conversation. And the only thing you need to know is what's important to you. Like we went, you know, we all have these professions because we learned how to do something useful and hopefully um, give you some useful resources. But the place to start is just by starting. Any one of the doors that you see here is the right place to start to just start thinking through how do I think in advance about this? And how do I make this not overwhelming? That's what we're here for is to, is to make it a lot less overwhelming, hopefully. Mm -hmm. I love um, it. Um, I see we have some questions. Is that what yeah, you're looking at? I wanted to, uh, there's no better way to have a, a discussion like this with a real life example. And everybody can see Shireen's comment in, um, in chat there. And it says, I have a living revocable trust and it is funded with our real estate assets, but our IRA and SEP cannot go into it. I don't have long-term care and, and she's referring to long-term care insurance for my husband and myself. And I don't want our retirement accounts to go, to go towards our care. I have done a power of attorney, a healthcare proxy. Our son says we need to make our trust irrevocable. Is this advisable? What should our next steps be? And um, I, the reason I wanted to break in on this is because we've also got some questions on long-term care insurance and kind of how that works together. So um, uh, Bernadette, you wanna take the lead on this one because sure. there's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo on that. <laughs> Perfect for me, absolutely. So um, revocable versus irrevocable trust. When you, run, when you talk about making a trust irrevocable, um, that implicates some Medicaid rules against gifting um, that are that impose penalties. So we want to be super really careful about making something revocable or irrevocable. And, and you need to sort of look at the entire um, caregiving situation, the person's medical condition and health assessment to figure out if nursing home um, placement is imminent or not. There's lots of different factors that go into that. So it's hard to say, you know, yes, you should do this. No, you should do, you shouldn't do that. We need a little bit more of a, a comprehensive evaluation of the entirety of the picture. Um, but um, if, if things are made put into irrevocable trusts and that penalty period that Medicaid imposes, which is five years long is um, outlived before you need Medicaid, then sometimes that can work as part of the plan. The, the planning for the IRAs is a little bit different. Um, they're, they're difficult to plan for in terms of long-term care because there's not a lot, there's a lot of tax consequences for pulling money out of IRAs. There's not a lot of ability to get those IRAs out of your name and to other people if we were gonna do some kind of a gifting plan um, that uh, without a lot of income tax consequences to you. So 
those are sort of more difficult things to plan for in terms of the long-term care piece of it and protecting those assets from, from the need to use them for your long-term care. Yeah. And I would say the answer, yeah, from me, when, when there was the statement, I don't want to use my retirement funds for that, that right there is an example of we need from a financial perspective, just what Bernadette said, there's part of your legal documents, which is going to allow you to do things and not do things. But you have to have someone in the aging life care world give you a care plan. How long are you looking at care? So when you're planning to pay for care, it's not just the here and now. You need someone to give you some kind of insight about years to come as well, right? And then it may be your goal. You may be hopeful that your retirement account does not get used for care, but that doesn't mean that maybe your retirement account can't be structured to generate an income stream that can be used for care, right? So when we say there are many different ways to pay for care, that is one example of you need to look at that particular retirement account and then look at everything else to see if you can piece a little bit together along the way to pay for the care in its entirety. Excellent points, excellent points, I agree. I think the other thing I would kind of jump in and say about that is that it's very personal. And sometimes I, um, like I tell, when I'm working with clients, I'll, tell, I'll ask them, where are you on the bill to coin scale? So my husband wants to live to be 100 no matter what. He wants every possible thing thrown at him. Um, as long as he is alive at 100, he considers is it success? I'm kind of on the opposite end of the scale. Like if it's more than a Band-Aid, I really want to think about it. Um, so in thinking about that, it's important to write that into your document. And also it affects your care. Um, it affects your care plan. Like my sort of moving into the, uh, the other side of this conversation is what the most important thing to you? Is it that you want to, if at all possible, pass along as much to your successors? In which case, you may not want to retire at the Taj Mahal. You may want to retire, you know, at your daughter-in-law's house. Um, but thinking about what your resources are and what your priorities are are also really important. Um, you can you can indicate that in your documents. You can structure your your investments that way, um, but it helps to have that conversation initially to kind of make that plan um, for what are your individual priorities and how do we make sure that those are written. I have gotten, and I I'm looked quickly at the participants and I'm happy to see there's lots of other care managers here. Um, what, we, what we like to do is find out really what's important to you. Um, sometimes we get clients from an attorney or from you know, somebody else that we don't know them. They may already have dementia or be in a healthcare condition where we haven't had a chance to see that. So we're taking on their care, but we haven't ever gotten to speak with them when they could tell us what's important. So I love when that is written into the document somehow um, so that I can see the priorities there, see them reflected in that way. I love it. And uh, Questions are coming in fast and furious, so I'm just going to stay on the screen here and just okay, kind okay. of uh, throw this at. But, but uh, Arvette, one of the things that I've been fascinated with is the concept of the life care affordability plan. Can you kind of, because this sort of stems into what we're talking right. about, is, right. is tell us a little bit about what that document does. Um, does. 
Okay. So when most people think about a financial professional, they go straight to the, they want to take all my money and manage my assets, which is usually a percentage fee, right? That's your traditional financial planner, uh, investment manager model. We're not talking about that. We are talking about a plan, a flat rate plan. And the goal of the plan is to what I call um, three tribes, three languages in this case, where you have the healthcare conversation that's happening. You have the legal documents that exist. And then you have the financials as well. And we need to bring all three of them together in one place to help better give you an idea of what your scenarios are and what your options are and how you're gonna pay for those options, right? So most people, when they think about a care plan, they think very linear. They don't think, oh, well, maybe I can stay home if I do this, or if I have to move, can I do this? Or do I stay in Northern Virginia or the DMV, or do I move to California with my daughter? There's lots of options. And the nice thing about the plan is that we can map all those options out, we get the input from an aging life care professional who does the care plan side. We look at all your legal documents and we go through those. And if anything needs to be adjusted, we'll reach out to an attorney. And the goal is to bring the three legs of stool together in one place for you as a family so that you could be better informed down the road when you have to make decisions. So that is why bringing all three of us together in one panel is so important because you cannot have an accurate plan without your plan touching all three of these components. I love it. Can okay. I, oh, go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Steve. Well, um, I, I was, was gonna just going to, I wanted to read this other um, uh, client scenario uh, from uh, Theodore. Um, okay. A client has an event and they are hospitalized. The hospital treats them for two days and discharges them to, for rehab to a rehab center. Is all of this paid for by Medicare until 20 days have elapsed at the rehab center? Then who pays for the rehab, if the rehab center discharges the client to their home and arranges for home care? Are there any expenses tax deductible for home care if the client cannot care for themselves? I, I hear this question on a regular basis. Maybe you guys- can All everywhere. It. Yeah. yeah. I, I can take a quick stab and then turn it over if that makes sense. Um, That's great. It's a great question. Uh, and it's kind of the bread and butter of what we, <laughs> we do in some ways. And when I see the hospital's two days stay, um, I wonder if that's on purpose because of course the magic number is three days. Um, and hospitals will sometimes keep people in for observation or keep you in for two days instead of three days. And the reason three days is the magic number is Medicare says, if you have a three-day hospital stay, that qualifies you for rehab. And rehab is also called skilled nursing. Um, so, so if the situation happens, you're in the hospital for three days, someone's in the hospital for three days, yes, you're absolutely correct. Um, Medicare pays 100% of the first 20 days, and then it pays 80% afterward. So if folks have a supplemental, generally the supplemental um, kicks into effect um, at that time. Um, then I think I'm trying to remember the rest of the question. Some of it was, well, sorry. Yeah, it's, so th this was, that good. was a good so, answer. So basically you need that three days. So the, the first part of this is if you're in the hospital for two days 
and then you're discharged, Medicare may not pay for that care depending on your rehab, then the then he's Theodore is saying 20 days have elapsed at the rehab and then who pays after Medicare is done? Right. Like how um how well I think I think first we need to understand that the time you stay in rehab is up to the rehab center. It is not up to you. It is not up to the like they have a plan. So as Colleen mentioned, Medicare will cover the first 20 days. After day 20, Medicare covers 80% and your supplemental insurance will usually pick up the other 20, but it's not guaranteed that the, the nursing home will tell you that. When you are discharged from the nursing home, regardless of when that happens and how many days, and you go home, there is the ability to do home health, which is covered by Medicare, but home care, which is different, is a private pay service that is not covered by Medicare, right? So people sometimes clump home care and home health together. They are not the same. And so part of having this emergency healthcare bucket, which is what we try to tell everybody to do, everybody plans for college, a new house, legacy, retirement, but nobody has that emergency bucket for healthcare. Home care would be that out-of-pocket expense that you would have to do. Now, I'm gonna hand it over to Bernadette because home care, depending on who you are and where you are in your legal documents, Medicaid may have a role or Medicaid may not have a role. Yeah, so Medicaid, generally speaking for that home healthcare is not gonna have a role coming out of the nursing home after rehab and Medicare. Um, you know, Medicaid has a lot of different components to it. I mean, I'm, I won't get into the weeds about it, but it has a medical eligibility component. It has a financial eligibility component. And part of the medical eligibility component for all intents and purposes is that if you want Medicaid to pay for your care, you have to be at a skilled nursing level of care and you have to be in a nursing home. Um, and for that, so that home health care, except under certain circumstances, like if you got a wait under the waiver program, which is severely underfunded and um, has a long wait list, or maybe you were in a nursing home and you want, and you say you want to come out on Medicaid, there are a couple circumstances that you might be able to get it in your home care in your home at that skilled level and have Medicaid cover it. Um, but in the scenario you do, you described Medicaid probably is not going to be a, a payer source or, or, you know, relevant to that discussion. And I want to uh, jump in here on Medicaid, uh, cause Dixie, um, uh, brings up a point that we hear a lot and she says, Medicaid is a government safety net for the most vulnerable Americans. It's not meant as a funding source for protecting long-term care and folks with retirement benefits. Um, from my understanding, back in the good old days, that was a lot easier to do, but it's pretty challenging to, um, to utilize the Medicaid system as an asset protection thing these days, correct, Bernadette? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, when you think about the continuum of care that we have, there's the, the funding sources for long-term care in this country are severely limited in terms of help to pay for it. If you don't have long-term care insurance and you're not, for lack of a better word, poor enough or sick enough to qualify for Medicaid, then you're looking at paying for things yourself. Medicaid, um, a lot of the regulations were, some would say tightened up, some would say decimated back in 2006 um, with the Deficit Reduction Act and George W. Bush. Um, and so a lot of the planning mechanisms we used to have for people who were, you know, maybe not super wealthy, but had some money 
um, but couldn't possibly finance long-term care for a long period of time. We had some planning mechanisms now. Those are pretty much for the most part gone. Um, and so, yeah, there are um, lots of folks that are never going to qualify for Medicaid on a financial basis because of the funds that they do have. Now, because we're on the topic of Medicaid, um, it, uh, let's just talk about one of the best aspects of Medicaid, and that's protecting the well spouse, um, it, which is different from the sort of Hiding the money. planning. Right. If you guys can share with the audience a little bit about um, how somebody can actually apply to Medicaid, even though they have assets that can be used to take care of the well spouse. Sure. You want me to take that? Or Arvette, you had thoughts about that? I'm... No, no. Go ahead. Colleen, well, I want to yeah, turn absolutely. it over to you all, but I think one thing that yeah. might be helpful, <laughs> because when I start working with clients, and I'll bet it's the same for you all, not everybody knows this, but just a real quick primer, Medicare and yeah. Medicaid. Were you yeah. going to do that? Okay. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, well, go. I'll let you go ahead and yeah, because I say thing. Medicare is a federal benefit that you can apply for if you're eligible. Medicaid is a state financial assistance benefit, right? So Medicare, federal benefit, you can apply if eligible. Medicaid, state level financial assistance. So the one thing I like to tell people about Medicaid is that back to what Bernadette said, is there's a medical need, there's an income need, and there's a resource need. So when Steve is talking about how do you protect the well spouse, most people are talking about the resource. Like if you have a house, right, that there is a person that could be on Medicaid and the house can be saved and protected for the well spouse, right? But what I would like to caution people, people forget about that income requirement. If you have social security and you have a pension and you have an investment account, likely you're not gonna meet that income low threshold for Medicaid, right? So that's one of the things you have to go to attorney. If someone in your family is saying, ooh, you should use Medicaid. I say, I tell people two things. One, go to attorney and see if you're even Medicaid eligible. And two, go to an AG life care professional and ask them to show you what Medicaid communities look like. Because some people don't really understand, right? What a care setting might look like and they need to visualize it. Yeah, so what I would say is, a couple of things about the medical piece of it. I always want somebody like Colleen on board so that we can talk about the medical eligibility component of Medicaid, because again, yep. you need that skilled level of care. Somebody who is appropriate for assisted living or, and here in Maryland, group homes are regulated as assisted living. is not going to qualify for Medicaid on that medical basis. So nope. the financial eligibility basis related to long-term care Medicaid specifically, as long as your income is lower than the cost of your care in the nursing home, um, Medicaid will cover you. The income piece of it is often not as important as the resource piece of it. And related to what Steve was talking about in terms of um, the federal regulations um, provide for what they call spousal impoverishment protections. So there are certain things if you have a well spouse in the community that are protected for that spouse from complete and total impoverishment. You know, if you're a single person on and you want Medicaid to cover your nursing home care, you can only have $2,500 in assets. If you're a married person, and you think, oh my gosh, I have to spend down to 2,500. No, no, no. There are additional um, protections for the spouse in the community, like our vet was saying, the house is protected and a couple other things. Um, and, and, and then the spouse is allowed to keep more than $2,500, but, but maybe not everything that they have. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, a great transition into a question from Joe Sperling says, are you in favor of long-term care insurance even for a well-off client? 
I mean, maybe I just, talk about what long-term care insurance, insurance is. is, and then uh, we can yeah. sort of talk about how that factors. Yeah. Yeah. Go so ahead. the history, so long-term care insurance um, has been around for decades now, right? And back in the day, there were lots of companies that were selling long-term care insurance. What happened over time is the insurance companies realized they were actually losing money on these benefits. So over time, it was harder and harder to actually find new long-term care insurance policies. If you're one of those people that can get a long-term care insurance policy through your work, that is awesome because a lot of people have stopped doing that. But if you can access that benefit while you're working and get that policy, that is great. Um, for now, if you do not have a long-term care insurance policy, what a lot of people are finding is that they are getting life insurance policies that then have long-term care insurance writers within them, as opposed to buying separate long-term care insurance policies. So it seemed like the question was, I am a, at a person of an age now that I need to decide if I need it. Long-term care insurance to me is, uh, it, it's not for just the wealthy or the not wealthy, right? It's a great benefit if you have access to it and you can afford to pay for the premiums because down the road, we can tell you, Colleen can tell you, this is her lane. Long-term care expenses, it's very expensive over time. If you take example, someone with dementia and the life expectancy and the need for possibly home care and, and or possibly assisted living and or possibly nursing, the cost of all of that care is gonna be way beyond what even the daily benefit will give you. So that will help. But Colleen, I'll let you jump in a little bit on that if you'd like to. It's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> I know, I know that. <laughs> um, and that is because I really see, I see it make a huge difference. Um, if you are, you know, let's say, the bulk of my clients have dementia. So let's say somebody has dementia, they need support. And you are, you have home care for a while. And at some point you're considering a residential community that home care, if you have full-time home care, um, just during the day, so let's say it's 12 hours a day, seven days a week, which is a lot, but it's also $100,000 a year on average. Um, if we're looking at a residential community, that's $100,000 a year, often easily. Um, it's going to be on the low end in this area, like 6,500 to $12,000 a month. And, and even if you are quite well-to-do, that's a lot of money. Um, and I work with a lot of clients who have what I call a regular amount of money <laughs> um, that aren't fabulously wealthy. And, you know, to start paying $8,000, $10,000 a month um, for care is, is considerable. And so what I see these long-term care policies do is allow that give somebody a little bit of freedom to say, I actually think residential care is the right option, or I can afford more home care, or I can go back to work and have somebody stay with my loved one. Um, it can also make the difference between a place you can afford and the place you really want. Um, and that really makes a difference as well. So I love to see them. And I, I want to really say here for everybody, this is like if I had one wish in life, it's that people with long-term care policies use them. The number one thing that I see my clients do is hoard them for a rainy day. And, um, wow. you know, we're in an area where there are lots of retired government employees. And so 
I'm fortunate to work with lots of people who did get a nice long-term care policy through the government when they were working for the government. And I think that's great. Um, the thing that I think clients want to do, even if we're at what I consider a very rainy day, they still want to save them for a rainy day. And the statistics are something like 60 or 70% of people who have long-term care policies never activate them. Yep. So um, I had just this year, a client who held onto theirs, held onto theirs, held onto theirs. I didn't work with them until well past the time where we could have activated it. So it's one of the very first things I did, but they had a hundred day elimination period and she died at day 104. Um, and that was so tragic. Yeah. <laughs> to me. yeah. So use it. Um, it's money you can only use for long-term care. You can't use it for anything else. Um, and I'd like to add on to that with the premium right. increase. I know everybody freaks out when the premiums increase. But if you think about it, the insurance companies are increasing the premiums because they want you to drop the benefit because they're not making money off of it. It's costing the money. So I would hesitate dropping the policy in most cases. Talk to whoever the financial professional is in your life and review those premiums and how that affects your overall financial picture before dropping it. All right. We got a pile of questions. It's quarter to one. Uh, I know our panel can stay on a little bit later and we're recording this. So we're gonna do our best to get through this pile. And I know you guys are gonna throw more things on the pile here, but let me just sort of start rattling these off. First off, been a bunch of questions about where each of you practice and where you're allowed to practice. Um, so uh, uh, Bernadette, I know for, as a, a law firm, you're yeah. legally, you have to pass the bar in specific states right. where, where, where right. do you practice? Yeah. So I practice in Maryland and DC. So unfortunately I'm, I'm not admitted in Virginia, but I, I practice in both Maryland and DC. And Colleen and Arvet can help you with elder law attorneys if you're, you're in Virginia. And we get people from all over the country tuning into this now. So the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys is a great resource to find all the elder law attorneys nationwide. Um, Colleen, where is your primary practice at? I'm strictly in Northern Virginia. Um, so, and I am fortunate that I live inside the Beltway and I tend to be just kind of in that Fairfax, Arlington, um, McLean, Alexandria area. Um, however, the Aging Life Care Association, the <clears throat> group that I'm a, a part of, if you go to Aging Life Care Association or ALCA, ALCA.org, find an aging life care professional. Um, there are, you know, there are lots, there are lots on this call. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, all the aging life care managers collaborate with each other. So if you called Colleen and, you know, you're in Loudoun County and that's not a, a region where one of your care managers is serving, she'll definitely give you a nice referral. And then our yeah. vet, your uh, practice is, it, it has no bounds. Right. Yeah. We actually, our office is in Tyson's, but we have clients all over the country. And we had a client who lived here. Her mother lived in um, California. Her brother lived in Seattle. So the plan that we worked on was comparing which area would be best for them to live in. And it wasn't just financial. We actually found aging life care professionals in those other areas to help us make the plan. And, and while you are a part of a financial planning practice, the life care affordability plan is something that actually other financial planners work with you on. Correct. It's yes. a great tool. Um, we get so. referrals from some other financial planners who realize 
that this post-retirement healthcare stuff happens space is not their lane. Like most financial professionals will talk about annuities and long-term care insurance. That's about the extent that they know about long-term care services. So we actually get referrals, we do the plan, and then we hand the plan back over to the family and the financial professional to execute the recommendations. Great. Okay, I'm going to try to, to go through the financial specific questions first, and then we'll get to the rest of them. But this is a good one from Robin Hall. Are there long-term care policies that family members can purchase or pay into for the care of a loved one? I work with many clients that are low income and don't have the financial stability for long-term care. Oh, that's a good question. I would say that I don't particularly have an answer for that. Colleen or Bernadette, I don't know if you do, but usually I will send people to places like AARP or the local county area agency on aging. So I know like Fairfax County has a lot of resources um, as well and can point you into some direction. And because that is kind of a loaded question with long-term care insurance policies really being very expensive right now, but there might be other ways to access something similar. Um, the at-home programs have um, something that's similar. Some of the counties have something that's similar. Um, Bernadette or Colleen, I don't know if you have any additional information for that particular question. Um, I would just echo the the local area agency on aging, especially specifically for people who are low income, low asset. There are, yep. you know, for people who need long-term care, there are, for example, in Montgomery County group home subsidy programs, other kinds of local county, you know, the Medicaid piece of it is a national state level kind of a program, but there are county specific things that can be provided to people mm -hmm. who live, you know, in the local jurisdictions that the local county government is providing. Yep. You know, one thing that question really speaks to, which again is another call, I don't get these weekly, but I get them monthly. And it's as a family member, sort of drawing that line in the sand yep. of what you, how you want to sacrifice your assets and your savings to care for a loved one who may not have those savings. I like, I like the scope of that question and because it's sort of saying, geez, mom's not gonna have enough money to pay for this care, but if we chip in and get her a long-term care insurance policy, at least we're not throwing in that, that much. Um, yeah, and as an adult daughter who has gone through a mother who was ill and watching her decline and die, those are, those are real conversations. And when we do planning, most financial planners meet with one person or a couple and one of them might not talk much, but we created, we created LCAP to be more like a healthcare experience. So Colleen and Bernadette, when they're meeting with clients, they're meeting with families just like I am. And we have had cases where families will say, I can pitch this amount. And others will say, I can't. And it's fine. Whatever the answer is, there's no right or wrong. We just have to come up with a plan of what pieces of the puzzles we have in front of us to, to deal with. Um, I love this. Uh, Jamie McDonald. Uh, who's a realtor in Northern Virginia, he, he writes, my mom purchased a long-term care insurance policy at 60, paid $45,000 upfront to age 75. She made a claim due to Alzheimer's. It's paid for herself within the first 180 days of her memory care. And she's there for 18 months. Now, I, I think Long-term care insurance, as we've all sort of said, and a lot of the comments are echoing this, is, is fantastic. But those of you, myself included, who have looked into purchasing a policy, 
they are extremely expensive um, these days because of what our vet said. And Ellen Pincus did ask, what's the best long-term care insurance policy to, to purchase if you are, are looking at it? Um, our vet, it's my understanding, there's not that many choices out there. These no, days. most of them are tied in through life insurance policies now, right? And um, I mean, get some information. I know Tom has researched this, but we don't, as a practice, just so you know, we don't sell life insurance or long-term care insurance. We don't sell annuities. We don't do any of that. So, but we do research so that we can tell our clients some places. So that's maybe one of the things I could try to follow up with Steve and, and try to give Steve some options on that. That's great. I also want to make sure, um, I know we're running out of time. I don't want to lose that last slide, Steve to get people organized. So you throw, tell throw me when. Up there. Throw that up there. And, and I know you guys are gonna hang on later. Like I said, this is, we'll get through this pile folks, if you've got a question there. Um, but if you wanna share this slide, because yeah, this slide can be overwhelming, but it also can be very um, thought provoking. Right. So, so I'm just gonna take a few minutes to talk through why this slide is very important. So when most people think about how do I pay for care, your mind goes right to one or two things, right? Um, you may have already paid off your mortgage. So the idea of having to spend $8,000 a month, you're like, there's no way I can afford that, right? But the reality is you can't answer that question until you go through every single thing on this list, right? If you talk to a financial professional, an aging life care professional, an attorney, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, you're going to have to gather all this stuff. So the best thing to do is try to start gathering proactively because when you're in the middle of a healthcare crisis and you're managing all these different things, you're just like, I don't have time for that. So I tell people, get a box, get a bin, get a safe, find all these things and just start sticking them in there, right? Start sticking them in there. Even if it's a statement, you know, if you have two credit cards, um, get two, two months of statements from each credit card and stick it in there. So a year from now, if something happens and someone in your family has to try to figure out what your bills are, everything's in one place, right? So um, don't be overwhelmed by this. Really important, we're gonna need it. And one thing on here I'll point out and then I'll stop. Most people forget about pension and social security survivor benefits. That is very important for figuring out if I'm gonna pay for care for my husband, when my husband dies, what am I going to be left with to make sure that the, the well spouse and the wife has enough money? You have to go find that information and ask for it and stick it in that pile. Great. Um, let's see. And uh, Mark Ash, I'm glad that you brought uh, attention to the Veterans Aid and Attendance Program, which can be used towards non-medical home care. Um, uh, I'll make sure to put a link to our discussion on that topic um, with this recording so that people can reference it. In fact, we've had a bunch of recordings, uh, discussions on financial aspects, and I'll try to consolidate them all on the same page with this recording for everybody. But let me, um, let me dive into a few more comments and questions. Uh, Joe Sperling has a lot of good comments on long-term care insurance in the discussion. And one of the things that he was saying is, is that if your policy increases, that one thing to, and it makes you worried, one of the things is to modify the policy rather than drop the coverage to adjust that premium. That's, that's a solution there. Um, 
let's see. Um, okay. I have one more thing, Steve, if, if you get a chance. Oh no, jump, jump in. No, it's so, open season right now. But. Yeah. So Colleen, I wanted to bring you into this one. So um, Colleen, I, I think it's really important for us to take a minute to just address the concept of the solo ager, right? So we talked a lot about spouses and couples and kids and stuff like that, but there are a whole population of people that are either not married, widowed, no children, or their children are far away and they fall into that solo ager bucket. And so I think it's really important that um, people in that space find these three sets of professionals to help them come up with a plan. And Colleen, I'll let you comment a little bit because I know this is one of your hotspots. Thank you. Yeah. Um and what I want to say about that is we're not gym memberships, all of the folks on this call. <laughs> so you can contact us and we all have basically as little or as much as you need. We can, we don't come in with an agenda and right. say, here's what you need to do with your life. The most important thing we do is ask you questions. Again, I always just come back to what's important to you. So if, um, if you are a solo ager and or just don't have that community around you, we just start by what's important to you. What, who do you have um, already that can be that support? If not, let's find it. I, for example, am healthcare power of attorney for a handful of my clients because they don't have somebody local to be that healthcare power of attorney. Um, but it's saying, let's look at that now because you're probably not sleeping well at night worrying about it a little bit. Um, we can come in, we can help out, kind of map that out and put these pieces in place so that then you can go back to living your life. Um, you're doing well now, that's great. We want you to keep doing that. I guess the other thing I wanna say is kind of to end this call, since we're wrapping up on time, um, every time a client calls me, no matter how much they are in crisis, I always tell them the punchline is it all works out. It always works out. And I know when we're talking about care and we're talking about money, it gets the heart rate up. It's scary. It's is this going to work for me? I'm not wealthy. I'm not blah, blah, blah. It always works out. I have clients that come to me, no family support, no social support, very little money, and we figure it out. Yeah. Um, we'll get there. <laughs> it's scary, it's but it great. always works out. Bernadette, did you want to touch on that as well? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always tell people my perspective is a little bit skewed because I'm a lawyer. And so we're sort of trained to be skeptical and we see sort of the, the worst case scenarios in a lot of ways, but I absolutely would echo what Colleen said, you know, related to that whole issue of that, that daunting list of that Arvet just had up there. All these pieces are so important, but the main piece is we all, we all start out with what's your objective and we can mm -hmm. get it done um, by using all these tools, but we all need to have all of the information, you know, all the same information. So it's step-by-step, I do, I'm in this area of practice because I uh, said to Colleen the other day, it channels a little bit of my inner social worker. I am more of a handholder than maybe, you know, you might expect from a lawyer and lots of elder law attorneys are like that. They're, we're mm -hmm. not scary. It's, we're very interactive and, and, and we want to help our clients. It's a very satisfying area of the law to practice. Great. Um, some really interesting questions that I'd love your guys' feedback on related to Medicaid and the type of care. And let me just kind of, I'm gonna read through these, um, but the um, Susan says, Medicaid patients in facilities are at risk of losing their bed if they complain about services. How can this be protected 
the ombudsman program has not been effective. I, I've never heard about that, but stick a pin in that one um, on losing be benefits if you complain. The other question uh, Robin brings up here is, I work with low-income elderly in Fairfax government housing. So many of our clients have Medicaid and the nursing homes that accept Medicaid benefits are not acceptable to them. There's a great need for care in this, um, in this space. Can you talk about when somebody is on Medicaid, if that is their choice, like what are the choices for them when they're looking at, um, at nursing home care? Colleen, I would say Bernadette, I, I'm gonna give it from a business perspective and then I'm gonna hand it over to Bernadette and Colleen. So remember, I actually work in a nursing home. I was the admissions director. So I just like to tell people when I'm talking to them about nursing homes, you have to remember it's a business, right? It is a business. Part of their beds are private pay, part of their beds are Medicare and part of their beds are Medicaid. So there is only a certain number of Medicaid beds at any community if that community takes Medicaid at all. So there are nursing homes that do not take Medicaid. They are not required to take Medicaid. So you are absolutely right that the number of Medicaid beds, especially here in Northern Virginia, will does not meet the demand, which is why you hear people having to go stay in the state because remember Medicaid is, is state, Virginia Medicaid, go farther south, go somewhere else to find a bed. So. That's just kind of the business side of it I wanted to explain. And then I thought maybe Bernadette, you might want to talk about the guardianship side or, or something like that. Yeah, I just have something to say really quickly about that because I think Colleen maybe has the bulk of it to talk about yeah. in terms of boots on the ground. But from my perspective, uh, you know, when I'm coming up with a long-term care plan for somebody, when we talk about financing, you almost never want to be in a position where, well, first of all, some of those people that are in public housing might be on community Medicaid, which is different from long-term care Medicaid, at yep. least here in Maryland and throughout the district. And I think it's the same in Virginia. That is so that's same. a little bit of a difference. But just having said that, from a long-term care planning perspective, I, I always want to have my clients to have, what, for lack of a better word, seed money to get into the best nursing home you can possibly find on private pay. Because when, if you run out of money and transition to Medicaid in that, in that regard, uh, and, you know, as that um, happens, they can't kick you out. When you have Medicaid as your main payor and you're trying to find a nursing home, that's when you run into the issue that Arvette was just talking about, which is you have to go to those nursing homes that have open Medicaid beds. And usually, frankly, those are the worst nursing homes. They just are. And so you don't have a lot of choice. You have more, the more money and maybe long-term care insurance benefits you have, the more choices you have. So that's another sort of plug for you know, doing the planning sooner rather than later and not sort of just going straight towards, I'm going to get on Medicaid and then, you know, I'm going to be on easy street. Yeah, and thank you. I, I wish there was an easy answer here. One thing that concerns me, and I was just actually typing to you, Susan, a private chat about that. When I hear that somebody is in a Medicaid um, location, like usually skilled nursing, and they're not getting what they need, that worries me. I was a nursing home ombudsman before I did this job, um, working in one of the scariest, I think, nursing homes in Northern Virginia. Um, and nobody should ever feel at risk for expressing a concern. That really concerns me that that's a concern. Um, um, I would love to kind of, um, troubleshoot that with you. An ombudsman is a good place to start. Um, 
but there are also other folks who can be advocates for you. And, and I guess I would say in that circumstance, be a squeaky wheel. Um, you can keep escalating those concerns up to the state. The state really wants you to do that. I got so concerned about a client that I had in the Medicaid that I connected with the CEO of that chain on LinkedIn um, and then called them <laughs> and said, I've got somebody in a nursing home in this location that's having this problem and they won't call me back and I need your help with this. Mm -hmm. um, so there are ways to get there. Um, getting fired up, I'm sorry, but nobody should feel compromised in a nursing home. You're vulnerable enough as it is. Um, let's figure out how to address that. That right. it shouldn't happen. Awesome. Yeah, and there shouldn't and there, there are certainly resources. shouldn't be a difference in the care between private pay and people on Medicare and Medicaid. Right. right. But I always remind people that nobody wants to be in a nursing home, right? Mm -hmm. No one's smiling as they go through the doors of a nursing home. So you know, there's a lot of moving pieces when you're dealing with care at that nursing home level. There's a high acuity, people are sick, there's funding issues. So there's just, you know, it's one of those spaces where we all have to be a little bit um, more understanding um, of each other and everybody as they try to work in a circumstance like that in, in a nursing home setting. And uh, Bernadette, while we're on Medicaid, here's a uh, question from Nancy, and she's wondering, if someone applies and uses Medicaid upon his or her death, can the house be garnished in order to reimburse the state for expenses to be paid out? I, I know a lot of folks are eligible, but would like to pass along their homes to their children. Uh, the answer is yes, under certain circumstances. If you're a single person, you are permitted under Medicaid to qualify for Medicaid to pay for your care and still hold on to your home. However, the state is gonna put a lien on your house for the amount of Medicaid benefits. If you have a spouse living in that home or a adult disabled child or a minor child, um, the house can be protected and the state cannot put a lien on it and will not go after it later on after you pass away. But if you're a single person, absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Great. Okay, let's see if we can tackle a few of these and then we'll wrap things up. Um, the, um, uh, oh, Je Jennifer Brown, on the comment about the 72, 72 hour, the three day Medicare um, during COVID, they shortened that to 48 hours and it, it, it may in some jurisdictions uh, still be available there. Thanks for and that. I, I wanna make a super brief chat, uh, comment about yeah. that. Um, it's something I've paid attention to since the very beginning of COVID is kind of they're waiving that three day stay. Um, and I love that, that's great. Um, and the feds keep kicking that forward. Every Periodically I go look at that benefit and, and they have not reverted it back. So technically you don't need a three day stay. But what I found in working with folks is that there is not a single place that is willing to take a gamble on this. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And so nobody, nobody, nobody is actually doing it. Even though I've taken the federal language and sent it to different skilled places and said, hey, you guys are covered everybody backs away from it. So you may know more than I do. <laughs> and they're backing away because they're afraid they're not going to get reimbursed. That's right. Right. That's right. Right. That's why. That's the reason. Because of the, once again, you have to remember it's a business. Right. Um, this, <laughs> yeah. is a, this is a good long-term care insurance one um, from Suzanne Russell. She says, I own a private pay assisted living facility, but let's call it a community. Nobody Maybe. wants to live in a facility. 
Long-term care insurance does not pay for assisted living, correct? My understanding is that it only pays for nursing home and rehabs as the only residential environment. That That's incorrect that there I are think policies. It, it depends on the, the policy. So every policy is every policy. So there were lots of companies that, that sold policies and then there's different language depending on what year or so you bought the policy. So you might've had an experience with one person whose language in that policy might not have had an assisted living benefit, but in general, most policies do have an assisted living benefit in general. Okay, great. Um, let's see, Susan says, I just wanna recast this point. The worst place as well for the most vulnerable my point, who is advocating and protecting the squeaky wheel puts the patient at risk for getting kicked out. You know, that Susan, the thing I love about these discussions is they snowball into other topics that we can dive into. And that's going to be a topic that we're going to dive into is protecting the vulnerable and, and, and low income. And let's see if we can come up with solutions and bring our voices together here. Um, the... Um, Let's see, uh, okay, uh, Arvet, still not understanding, when does a family contact you and how do we use your services? So a family can contact us at any time. We typically work with people who are post-retirement and have had some kind of healthcare issue. And I should, I mean, we had a guy who called us at 47 who had Alzheimer's, so he wasn't really post-retirement years, but if there's some kind of healthcare issue, um, or concern about paying for care, then just call us. We don't charge by the hour. You can just call me, we can talk it through. If it makes sense to hire us for a plan, then we'll explain that. And in some cases I get calls and I'm like, you know what, there's not enough moving, moving pieces for us to actually do a full plan. So in that case, I would give you referrals and resources to go through, but um, you can always give us a call and let's just chat. Okay. And this is a good one for all three of you. And it's from Mark Ash. And he says, what do you all look for in agencies that you would choose to refer to your clients for care? And let's broaden that. Just what do you all look for in any sort of referral partner that you're going to recommend to your clients? I'll start. Um, I really look for a passion for this population. Um, if you... I want somebody who's thinking about the individuals that are involved. Um, when I work with clients, usually on the very first meeting, I hold up my cell phone and I say, the reason to work with an aging life care professional is we have the private cell phone of the owner or the person responsible of everybody we're referring. It's like, it's like if you um, are planning a wedding, um, you use a wedding planner because they know the florist and they can text them at four in the morning and say, we need more white, whatever it is. And that's what, um, I love it. I know. That's what we do. I've had coffee with everybody and there are certain people who do it because they used to have a big job and now they want to make more money in a different setting. That's great. Live your life. But the people that I'm going to have coffee with are the people that say, I love what I do. Um, I love who I get to work with. I love these families and really have a commitment and, are, you know, are gonna give me their cell phone so that, that they're owning the problem. They know that when I'm recommending them to a family, they're gonna be responsible and, and accountable to any concern or compliment that, that we have. 
I, I agree completely. I don't, I, I come at this from a place of, you know, I love the people that I work with, my clients and their families. And I, I agree, Colleen, completely that I want so another professional to feel the same way about their job and, and, and the populations that they work with. I also have elderly parents myself. So I'm sort of in that position now where, you know, got, thankfully they're healthy and live independently, but, you know, I want somebody who I would feel comfortable, you know, asking them to help my parents. Um, and that's how I feel about all of my clients too. That's how close I want somebody to be able to, to work with them and, and feel comfortable with my clients and, and do for them, you know, the best job that they can because they do have a passion for it and they, and they really do care. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love it. We, we did have a question on Medicaid waiver, something that we didn't dive into deeply on this. And somebody was saying, I heard there's this long list for Medicaid waiver and wa- Medicaid waiver is generally a program that supports uh, things like assisted living and home care, yeah. as opposed to nursing home. I just dropped into chat because like in Maryland, for example, Medicaid waiver, endless list, you, you know, get on the list, but you're probably never going to get picked. Right. Virginia has a very interesting program. And if you listen to our discussion on that, you can actually qualify for the Medicaid waiver, a special Medicaid waiver in Virginia. Take a look at the uh, discussion that we did on that. And you can learn in general more about Medicaid waiver. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Um, Christine Dolan asks one more time, can somebody just summarize what are the qualifications to get a Medicaid bed in a nursing home? Okay, you want me to take that? I can do it, I think. (laughs) Um, To get a Medicaid bed, Colleen, do you wanna talk about the medical part of it maybe? Actually, is that the question? Is it about what, what, how much, what kind of disability do you need? Or is it about money or everything? You know, like what are the check boxes that need to. I think part of it is strategy. And then part of it is actual. That's a loaded question. Yeah. I, maybe the actual ones would be helpful. I mean, maybe from Colleen, you could handle like the medical part of it about, you know, the, how, how you, how you qualify for a skilled, skilled level. Right. So you have to have a skilled nursing level need. Um, and, and that's a little difficult to quantify, but it has to do with not being able to manage your activities of daily living, dressing, bathing, eating on your own for either physical reasons or cognitive reasons. So the very first passes at it is, do you need skilled or, or do you qualify on those levels? But even qualifying on those levels, unfortunately, doesn't qualify you for needing skilled nursing. Um, Those needs could be met, for example, at assisted living. um, But as Steve mentioned, getting that covered in Virginia is tricky. I had a client that I spent years and I called every place (laughs) every few months um, and asked them, do you have a bed, do you have a bed, do you have a bed? Um, So using that waiver to to live at assisted living is tricky. so generally, when people are at skilled, it's, it's following a hospital stay um, or following some kind of health event like needing, like having wounds or needing an IV or something that puts them at that skilled level. Um, it's tricky. Uh, I wish there was an easy answer. And I know in the few minutes that we have, it isn't, it's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just a general, I, I, I want to recognize our audience because they have these questions and they're sitting there waiting. I think one of the things that 
is to reach out to our panel members. I dropped their contact information on there and they may be able to help you privately with that. Why don't we just wrap up with one last question here? And um, it says, uh, and this, this is direct to Arvet, but I think all of you could comment on it. Arvet, so in a life insurance policy, is the long-term care policy rider the same as an accelerated death benefit in which you can use part of the death benefits before you die and you can use the life insurance benefits to fund your long-term care insurance? I know, right. I know there's these hybrid products that are out there now, and I think this question is addressing them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And every policy is slightly different. So sometimes you can accelerate death benefits for things other than long-term care, right? So they don't have to necessarily be tied, but it could be that you could accelerate benefits to use it towards care, or it could be that there's actually a separate care language writer in the insurance. So if you already have the insurance policy, I tell everybody, pull out your insurance. No one's read their insurance policy in years. Pull out your insurance policy, read your insurance policy, figure out what's in there, figure out if you can add something to it. Like those are the kinds of conversations we have with clients when we're going through this um, planning process. Yeah, I would just make a very general comment that just like it's here comes the your medicine or your homework is that you have to read your policy. I mean, every yeah. lots of policies can have lots of things in them. Um, and so the policy, reading the policy, reading admissions agreements, this is your lawyer telling you this, you just have to read it <laughs> physically, like make yourself <laughs> sit down and read it or pay somebody to read it for you and explain it to you. But e either yep. way, you have to look at the documents themselves to figure out what you have and what you're going to do about it. Yep. All right. I love it. You know, I got an app on my phone now that I can take pictures of things and it'll just read it to me. <laughs> um, anyways, <Love> it. <laughs> this has been a fantastic discussion and and the proof is in the pudding that we're 17 minutes past uh, the hour and we still have plenty of people on uh, listening to this. Thank you to all three of you. Thank I you. will uh, post this recording this afternoon and uh, this is going to be the first of many. I think we need to follow up with some more um, discussions on these topics. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.